This week on the Pro Wrestling Podcast, Podcast. Vince McMahon tries to shoot on the Olympic gold medalist, Kurt Angle. A&E's special biography on Stone Cold Steve Austin, the rattlesnake. Jim Ross and Conrad Thompson revisit the John Cena vs. Rob Van Dam match from ECW One Night Stand. And Mark Carano fired from WWE. I'm your host, Seth Grimes, and this is the Pro Wrestling Podcast Podcast. Forgive me. I'm a little out of breath. Running down the stairs after eating a nice, big, fat, juicy Five Guys burger. Grease dripping all down my hands and onto the plates and onto the table. They give you all these fries with Five Guys. I don't know if you guys have ever eaten there. They give you this big pile of French fries. They give you, like, a a cup of fries, but then they scoop and dump, like, four more, five more, six more cups into your bag. So you get this giant, like, grocery bag full of French fries and then a burger, which is usually like a double burger, and it's a greasy heart attack waiting to happen, and it's enough about that. I just want to explain why I'm slightly out of breath here, but I'm here for you still. Regardless of my slight heart attack, I gotta gotta get in and I gotta do this episode for you guys. And what better way to kick it off than with this story here? You know, last week we got all the big releases, 10 releases. I only covered nine last week. I forgot poor Mojo happened after I recorded it, but uh, fuck Mojo anyway. I mean, really, who cares, right? What? What? Sue me. You're a Mojo Raleigh fan? We got a Mojo Raleigh fan in the crowd listening to this? Come on. Come on. Anyway, the story broke over the internet this week. In regards to Mickey James getting a package in the mail with the rest of her stuff. It's like uh, getting fired at the office and they clean out your cubicle and send you home with a box of shit. And they tell you to come pick up your box of shit from security. This is the WWE version of that. Get the fuck out of here and we'll mail you your shit. I didn't even know they kept shit. I didn't know was she leave her fucking pants in the locker room or something. Like what? what did she leave there at WWE? Regardless, she got it in a trash bag in the mail. She got her stuff back in the trash. And, of course, Mickey took to Twitter with pictures of her fancy WWE trash bag. And it caused a shitstorm back at the office. Check out this clip from Figure Four Wrestling Online. Now, it's funny you should bring that up, Mike, because uh, there was a story that broke yesterday. Which, uh... We got to talk about here. After being released by WWE last week, Mickey James posted a picture on social media Thursday afternoon showing a box WWE sent her that had her belongings in a trash bag with her name on it. Both Paul Levesque and Stephanie McMahon took to Twitter Thursday night to publicly apologize to James and say the person responsible has been fired. It is unknown if others involved will also be relieved of their duties. Dave Meltzer said the person involved is someone major. And then, moments later, in what quickly became an overhaul of the Talent Relations Department, Senior Director Mark Carano 
is no longer with WWE, fired on Thursday following the trash bag incident that went viral on wrestling Twitter. News first reported by Wrestling Inc. confirmed by Dave Meltzer. Mark Carano, done. Finally. Mark Carano has called a bajillion people and fired them. So for him to get that call to fire him, that must have been so satisfying. I wonder who fired him. I wonder if it was Johnny Ace. Who knows? But Carano's been with the company a long, long, long time. Uh, he was famous for being on Total Divas. Uh, he, he was kind of a starring character on there, whether he wanted to be or not, as the guy who was a dick to everybody and <laughs> fired people and that kind of stuff. So um, he'll be fine. He'll get another job somewhere. He'll be okay. But this whole mailing wrestlers shit in their trash bags, I don't even know if that's a fireable offense. I don't know if that was meant to be a jab, like you're just a trash bag hoe, here's your trash bag shit, or if it was just a nice, safe, waterproof way to mail it to him. I don't know. I don't know. Regardless, she didn't take too kindly of it. Uh, I don't think that's necessarily the best way to treat a surefire Hall of Famer, one of the legends of the women's wrestling division. But hey. Uh, to each his own. WWE has their way of doing things. Mark Carano, not the sweetest guy in the world. Can't say I feel bad for him. So, good luck. Kick rocks, buddy. Hope you find a new gig. Hope you land on your feet. Hope you're not as big of a douchebag as you were in, uh, this life here. On the Kurt Angle show this week, Kurt Angle was talking with Conrad Thompson and they had Ask Kurt Anything. Similar to what they do with the Arn Anderson show. And uh, they fielded a question about the infamous plane ride. Where Vince McMahon got into a little bit of a skirmish with Kurt Angle. Check this out. What are Kurt's memories of the plane ride from hell? Oh, God. It was the longest night of my life. Uh, you know, the thing was, I was on the plane and Vince had a few wines in him. A few glasses of wine and. He was feeling frisky and he thought, Hey, why not? If I'm going to wrestle someone that's the best, might as well wrestle an Olympic gold medalist. I'm going to try him out. You have to understand Vince is a type of guy that would say to Mike Tyson, Hey, knock me out. Go ahead. Hit me in the face. I want to feel what it's like. He wants to feel what it's like to be with the best person. Yeah. Do. And I totally get it, you know, but Vince is crazy. Uh, so he was, you know, jumping on me and, or, or he would have somebody come get me and say, they wanted to talk to me in the back of the plane. I'd get up and he'd jump me from behind and we would wrestle. We did it for five hours. Like, you know, wrestling a few minutes, I'd hold him down. I say, are you good? He's like, yeah, yeah, we're good. And I go back and lay down and he would jump on me again. Or, you know, he would have someone call me up and go to the back of the plane. He'd jump on me again. So it went for five hours and it just became very irritating. And Vince and I are wrestling near the door, the latch. You open the latch and push it open. The door is open. You fly out of the plane. We kept hitting the latch while we were wrestling. So the flight attendant came and said, Hey, the, the pilot said, if you don't guy, if you don't sit down and stop, he's going to land this plane right now. And Vince says, go, go tell the pilot to fuck himself. I'll buy the fucking plane. I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> Can you picture being on this plane? You're there. You're tired. You're worn out. You're just trying to get some sleep. 
Or you're having some cocktails and you're having a good fucking time. You're getting all loosened up, hanging with the boys. Vince McMahon's there. He's even kicking back. Instead of being the boss man, he's having a few wines and partying with the boys. We already know how Vince McMahon is just in normal everyday real life. Imagine drunk Vince McMahon. Imagine the insanity of a drunk Mr. McMahon on an airplane nonetheless. And you're the Olympic gold medalist and you're tired and you're just trying to rest. And every time you turn your back, Vince is trying to shoot on you. Here he is, a 60-year-old man at the time probably, trying to take down an Olympic gold medalist. And Kurt would stuff him and Kurt would hold him down, put a little hold on him, get him to quit. Okay, you done now? Yeah, I'm done. Ah, God damn it, I'm done. And then as soon as you let him up, that motherfucker come and try to take him down again. And he kept trying. And Kurt explained in this episode that Vince was the kind of guy that just wanted to experience it. He was the kind of guy that would want a Mike Tyson to punch him in the face just to see what it was like to get punched in the face by Mike Tyson. There was a crazy, childish enthusiasm in Vince McMahon that wanted to just see what it was like to wrestle with an Olympic gold medalist. And just try it. Just try to take the man down. See how well you do. And he just kept coming and coming and coming. Great shit. This is why I love professional wrestling. These are the kind of stories that I live for as a pro wrestling fan. It's The in-ring stuff is great. It's entertaining to watch. It does fill my heart with goodness. But really to me... The thing I love the most about the pro wrestling business is all the shit you hear about behind the scenes. Wrestling is so much more interesting outside of the ring than it is inside of the ring. That's just me, but that's how I see it. I love all these podcasts. That's what I do. That's why I do what I do for you guys. All right, I do this because I love it. I'm going to listen to every single one of these anyway. Least I can do is talk about it and share my thoughts with you guys. And then you can share your thoughts back. I love to hear it. Leave your thoughts in the comments and shit. Tell me, do you think you could take Kurt Angle? Do you think if he wasn't paying attention, you could just sneak up on him and double leg him? Maybe. Maybe. Maybe you gotta be a 60-year-old man to do it. Who knows? But Vince, Vince is a crazy motherfucker. That guy, I I would just love to hear. I want to tell all book about Vince McMahon by Vince McMahon. I want to see the biopic. I want to see all the insider dirt on a Vince McMahon. Every single story you hear about this guy just makes you laugh, makes you go, what the fuck? He's an insane person. He's an absolute insane person, but a genius at the same time. And uh, there'll just never be anybody like him. He's a one of a kind, that's for sure. Check out the full story and all the other things that Kurt talked about on Ask Kurt Anything. Part of the Kurt Angle Show drops every single Sunday. On Grilling JR this week, Conrad and Jim Ross covered the 2006 run for John Cena. One of my favorite years in John Cena's career. One of my favorite years in WWE, honestly. Like, that was to me like the peak of the uh, ruthless aggression era and this was right around the time that the ECW was coming back full time we had just had the ECW one night stand pay-per-view the year prior and it was a huge hit and all these ECW guys were available so the idea came up hey 
let's bring it back full time. So uh, to kick this thing off, they went into ECW One Night Stand 2006. And this was headlined by the newly crowned and on the rise superstar John Cena as WWE champion. Facing off against the Money in the Bank ladder match winner and cashing in, Rob Van Dam. And here were Jim Ross's thoughts about this. Check this out. We already sort of teased it a moment ago. Rob Van Dam, Rob Van Dam, easy for me to say, picks up the win in 20 minutes and 39 seconds. The atmosphere that night was off the charts, as you mentioned. Yeah. Um, I mean, ECW fans here were chanting same old shit. Fuck you, Cena. You can't wrestle. And I mean, it was, it was quite the atmosphere. He takes his shirt off, throws it to the crowd. They throw it back. Made for great TV. Yeah. Uh, but I, I do wonder, was it a risk in making our guy who we just heard the main event at triple H, you know, uh, at WrestleMania say, Oh, you're a transitional champion. You can't wrestle, man. Just a handful of months later, fans are giving it right back to him that same way. Yeah, it was, uh, it was challenging, but John weathered the storm. Yeah. And he showed great uh, character. He showed great integrity. As far as the profession was concerned, he went out and as any true pro would do, he, he ran the plays that were called and he did it very well. This is one of my all time favorite WWE pay-per-views. Yeah. I'd still consider it a WWE pay-per-view. Um, just cause it was so heavy, not only produced by WWE, but so heavy on WWE talent. You could call it an ECW pay-per-view regardless. This is one of my favorites, you know, like, uh, Jim said in this podcast episode, this was one of the better atmospheres he's ever seen for a WWE show. I agree. I think the smaller, more intimate setting, I think the fans were so tightly packed in. Of course, that would make you gasp today in the COVID era, but back then it was like a it looked like a concert mosh pit. You know, it wasn't a bunch of families sitting in their seats. It was a bunch of rabid 18 to 40-year-olds sweating all over each other, wearing black t-shirts, screaming EC dub. And this was the infamous pay-per-view, if you remember, that had the sign. It was more like a like a bed sheet or something that said, if Cena wins, we riot, hanging from the rafters. And you really had that feeling watching that show that, yeah, uh, if Cena wins, the crowd's probably going to riot. I, I would not have ruled that out uh, at the time, but it was such a spectacle. It was something that... Sure, if you'd seen ECW before, it fit right in with the ECW tradition, and that's why you could definitely make a case, say this was an ECW pay-per-view, not just in brand and talent, um, but in the energy that it put out. You know, Even though it had WWE talent, this was such an ECW show. Uh, look at when Randy Orton faced Kurt Angle earlier, and here's two WWE guys, but the ECW fans ate Kurt Angle up because they respected him. So they took him in as their own. And, you know, there was always that rumor that Kurt was possibly looking at joining ECW anyway. So it was kind of like redoing something that was that never got to happen the first time. So the ECW fans didn't hate Kurt Angle, but they hated Randy Orton and they gave it to him hard. But this was nothing compared to the reaction to John Cena from the rabid crowd. Such a fantastic fucking uh environment the match was so so it was okay 
Um, and it had a schmozzy finish and all that kind of shit. But the crowd, they were rabid. Cena took his shirt off and he always threw his shit in the crowd. Some lucky fan would take it and bring it home and put it in a fucking glass case and treasure it forever or wear it every night when they go to bed. Whatever the fuck. But here they were throwing it back at him and he kept attempting. You know, okay, that guy didn't want it. Maybe that guy wants it. Nope, he didn't want it. Maybe that girl over there, she wants it. No, there were no girls there. What am I talking about? That guy, that guy, that guy. Everybody kept throwing it back. People were even spitting on it. I think a guy wiped his ass with it a little bit. Uh, and, they, and they kept throwing it back at John Cena. And this was this was a crowd that wanted Cena's blood. And they were going to get it whether Rob Van Dam did the job for them or if they had to jump the rail and do the job themselves. I highly recommend if you're new to wrestling and you know, you, you're not really familiar with those older shows, it's crazy to say that a 2006, you know, that the Ruthless Aggression era was old now, but fuck it, that's getting close to 20 years now, 15 years ago. That's ridiculous. But uh, if you haven't watched those shows from back then, I highly recommend you go back and watch this show just from top to bottom. There's uh, It's an ECW-themed show, but it's got enough WWE guys kind of sprinkled in throughout it where you know Rey Mysterio was on the card, Randy Orton was on the card, Kurt Angle was on the card, Big Show was on the card, John Cena, Rob Van Dam, uh, Eugene made an appearance and got the shit kicked out of him by the Sandman with a kendo stick. I'm sorry, with a Singapore cane. My mistake. Sorry, guys. But... Uh, Man, what a great show. Again, one of my all-time favorites. You know, I always kind of get sideways looks because I actually liked this one better than I liked the 2005 One Night Stand. And, and a lot, I know some of you are like gasping right now. <gasps> 2005 was the greatest ever. And a lot of people will say that that was the, you know, best ECW WWE show. Uh, some even say it was their favorite ECW just period. Um, that was much more ECW-centric than this one was, but I think the story that they were telling throughout the show and just that culmination with John Cena as the fucking, he, you know, he was, at the time, he was, you know, before Roman Reigns made it cool to be shoved down our throats and, and reject them and boo them, it was John Cena. You know, earlier in the podcast, Conrad and, and Jim kind of speculated as to why the fans didn't take to John and why they booed him all the time in that era. And Jim kind of freestyled that he thought maybe it was just kind of the cool thing to do. Fans were just, you know, wanting to chant something and it was trendy and all that shit. I disagree. This was the start of the WWE shoving somebody down our throats. Now, John eventually earned everybody's respect. I don't think there's too many of those people left that look back at a John Cena and and still hate John Cena. Or, you know, I think everybody at the very least has respect for him and respect the career that he put on. I mean, he ha had a hell of a career, a hell of a run. But at that time, he was the guy. Like, once he turned babyface, Vince had a hard-on for him, and Vince just pushed him, pushed him, pushed him, pushed him, pushed him. You know, he beat JBL at WrestleMania 21, and the fans loved it. By the time he got to WrestleMania 22, the crowds were split. They kind of wanted Triple H to get it, and, and that led right into this here, this 2006 ECW show. By 2000, uh, by WrestleMania 23, when he fought Shawn Michaels, the crowd hated him, and they wanted they were fully behind Shawn Michaels. 
you know, you get your kids and your girls, they loved Cena because, you know, Cena was colorful and he was this and he was that. But if you were that coveted 1849 demographic, whatever the fuck they say, you didn't really like John Cena. He was shoved down your throat. He was a little bit too squeaky clean for what you were into. You know, he used to cut all those rap promos with these nuts and all the little innuendos and stuff. So he had when he had that edge, he was liked. But as soon as he started kind of becoming, uh, you know, he he had, was he was a little bit of like, I think in those early years he kind of took on like a GI Joe marine style uh approach to it he had the dog tags and everything he was kind of just like the super soldier in a way uh captain america you know but at the time the fans didn't want captain america they wanted something more edgy and they wanted to choose who they liked they didn't want to be told who they liked and this was the start of this thing where vince was just pushing a guy and pushing a guy and the crowd could boo them till they were blue in the face and Vince is going to stay the course because Vince knows better. He's that goddamn stubborn that he's just going to push and push and push. But man, that atmosphere will probably never be recreated in WWE. It's something that you would see on an indie show, the old ECWs back in the day. ICW kind of had that feel over in, uh, what was that, Scotland or England? Um, you know, they run that that territory over there. They kind of carry that feel with them. But just go back and watch this. This was probably my favorite John Cena match. One of my favorite all-time WWE pay-per-views. And just everything about it just worked great for me. It had the edge. Oh, I almost forgot it had Edge and Mick Foley versus Tommy Dreamer and Terry Funk. And Beulah McGillicuddy, just a fantastic show. Go check it out. Enough of me ranting about it. And go check out Grillin' JR. Listen to the full episode. They run through the full 2006 era for John Cena. A critical year for his career. Great shit. Check it out. We all had the good fortune this week of being able to watch the Stone Cold Steve Austin A&E special. Uh, they did a little biography piece. They're doing a biography piece every week on a number of WWE superstars, starting with Stone Cold Steve Austin. And this was such a good piece to watch. Uh, it's definitely not a quality documentary that you would get to see like on the WWE Network or on Peacock nowadays. But it covered all the main bases, you know, it did cover his full career. They had full access, it looked like, to all the footage and pictures and and interviews that they could possibly want. They interviewed Paul Heyman for this. They interviewed Jim Ross. They interviewed The Rock. They had they had all kinds. Mick Foley was there. They had all kinds of guys there uh, just willing to talk about Steve's career. It was a really good put-together piece, and it really kind of puts into perspective more than anything is sometimes I kind of tend to forget how big and how impactful of a run that Steve had because it was so short, too. He really did burn like a white hot flame. You know, there's always been the great debate. Who was the biggest star in WWE history? Was it Stone Cold Steve Austin or was it Hulk Hogan? Well, Hulk Hogan didn't sell as many T-shirts as Steve. Hulk didn't bring as much money into the company as Stone Cold Steve Austin did. Steve was the bigger star, bar none. By every metric that you could try to measure it, Steve set that bar. 
And he worked his ass off to get there. They showed that. And I'd said before on this podcast, Stunning Steve Austin. I was a huge fan of Stunning Steve from the minute that I first saw him in WCW. He was great over there. It was a mid-card act. He definitely wasn't uh, that act. Stunning Steve Austin wasn't necessarily going to be the world champion over there. But he was a fucking star right from the beginning. There was no mistaking it. And it's fun to see the stopover that he did in ECW. They covered that where he's down. Think, Picture this. Stone Cold Steve Austin down in some guy's mom's basement while Paul Heyman just points a camera at him and lets him talk. Then he gets on the radar of WWE and Vince doesn't want anything to do with him. They even interviewed Vince for the show, and you heard him say that he thought Steve was a waste of his time. He actually said those words. I thought he was wasting my time, or I thought he was a waste of time, or whatever he grumbled under his grumbly voice. Can you imagine if they would have let Steve go before that night at the King of the Ring? They were basically to the point already where their hands were done with, with, you know, When Steve's contract was up, he was probably going to not get re-signed had he not done something at that point. That night was critical to the career of Steve Austin. And man, he just went for it. And he became the biggest star in wrestling ever. He changed the business. He turned WWE's business around. He brought them to the point where they were a publicly traded company. He won the Monday Night Wars. Everybody and their mom had that Austin 316 t-shirt that they talked about. Everybody. Everybody you knew. You remember going to school back then? If you're around my age or anywhere in that range, school age, you saw kids at school wearing that shirt. That or the NWO shirt. Steve was a phenomenon. He was all over everything. They showed those clips, and I thought that was just great that they were able to get that little montage in there. They they showed him on The Simpsons. They showed him on Celebrity Deathmatch. All those celebrity cameo appearances that Steve made during that time. And every single week, he delivered. He went out there, and he entertained everybody. There was nothing like it at the time. There'll never be anything like it again. It was just magic, that whole era. And Steve Steve leaves behind a legacy now that, like they said, nobody will ever be able to live up to it. He was and probably always will be the biggest star in the history of pro wrestling. That doesn't count acting, of course. You know, The Rock is obviously the biggest star to ever come out of wrestling. But the big star in wrestling had to be Stone Cold Steve Austin. I had the good pleasure of watching Steve live one time ever. I don't know that this was ever even on TV, but it was the go-home SmackDown taping for WrestleMania 23. And Stone Cold Steve Austin was... uh, JBL was out, and I, I don't know... I think he was just caught in a promo. And then because Steve was going to be at WrestleMania 23, I guess he was just there. It was completely unadvertised. I don't think it was even on TV. I think it happened after, um, before the ECW taping. I'm I'm not entirely sure. Steve came out, just gave JBL the stunner, drank a bunch of beer, and the crowd went insane. Insane. Still, at that time, all the way up to WrestleMania 23, the pop for Steve was huge, partly because it was a surprise or in, in partly just because he's that big of a star 
and his impact on this business forever changed the business. There will never be another Steve Austin as long as this business lives. And if you haven't checked out this documentary, go check it out. It's not going to teach you anything new. If you're a wrestling historian or just a, a good fan, you already know all this shit. It's already been told a million times. But this is just exposing this to a whole new audience that maybe uh, just isn't as familiar with the wrestling business or as familiar with Stone Cold or just the newer fans that weren't around back then to really see that run. Uh, so for those reasons and just how well this was put together, go check it out. Kyle O'Reilly made a rare podcast appearance. He was on Pro Wrestling for Life with Sean Waltman, of all people. He was talking about his experience in NXT and being a part of the Undisputed Era and what it was like and what went into the Undisputed Era breaking up. Check this out. You know, who, who, who decided and why uh, that it was time to end uh, UE? So I don't know. Is this how candid should I get here? I guess. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah do your thing, man. Right. Yeah. There's yeah. No, uh, so yeah, it, it, it goes to show how much trust they have in us as performers. Um, cause it started with just, can you guys come in Sunday and we'll kind of have a booking meeting and you guys can pitch ideas for what's next. And that's, what's been great about the entire writing staff there and the powers that be like, they want to hear our opinion and, and run things by us and get our suggestions. And this booking meeting turned into, all right, well, I guess we'll like, it was not the plan that coming in, we'll, we'll bring these guys up and we'll, we'll let them down easy and tell them we're splitting them up. It had nothing to do with like, like an executive decision. This has to happen. Like it was a, a true collaboration in the sense of, okay, well then if we're doing this, we got to do it tonight. This is the pay-per-view. We're going to maximize the opportunity and get the most people to tune in Wednesday to see why, what happened and uh, create more questions. I mean, that's how you want to end a show, like a big pay-per-view yeah. show, right? Something crazy like that happens and, what, the UE, what? So I think that's, it's kind of crazy how it all happened so fast and so suddenly. And then literally within hours of like, what the, this is happening? Oh my God. And it, it does suck because, I mean, this has been the best thing that's ever happened to me in my career is, is this group with these guys and I've had the most fun and I've learned so much and I've become a better performer. Yes. But just because like we split up now, it just makes the eventual reunion even a bigger deal, right? Sure. Well, well, I remember when they when they broke DX up for the first time, right? And like, yeah. oh my god! Oh. Yeah, yeah. You know? it, <laughs> like, oh no! It really was time. I mean, as great as this faction was, I would have liked to see them come up as a faction to the main roster. And of course, that's still a possibility. They could do it that way. I would have liked to see, you know, because we've seen things like this before, like the Nexus. When the Nexus came up as a group, it was fucking cool. It's a bunch of new guys that nobody knows, especially back then. But grouping them all together made them cool and made them a threat at the same time. They've tried to repeat this since, and it just hasn't worked out the same. That was a really unique angle that they did. But I would have liked to see the Undisputed Era come up as a group, and then they can break up after that. But that would have probably spelled death for three of the four people in Undisputed Era anyway in WWE. Because you look at this team, and it was time to break them up. I'm not saying keep them together just because they can all go up to the main roster together. You know, they've been together so long, what else can they do at this point? There's new stories to tell. But 
it's going to be really hard for guys to break out of the pack now. You got Roderick Strong. The guy can work, but he has zero personality. And he's older now. He's been around for a long, long time. He's a veteran. He's got his fucking working boots on. He can. He's a great wrestler. But being a wrestler doesn't really get you all that far in WWE. It never has. Traditionally, it's not a wrestling company. It's a sports entertainment company. As far back as since the day you were born listening to this, basically, unless you're an old, old man, you know, if you live through the 80s and, and upward, WWE is a giant cartoon with wrestling as its centerpiece but not strictly wrestling and that's why there's so many purists out there that didn't like wwe at the time when the territories were all shutting down because vince wasn't doing wrestling he never has it's not his style so a guy like roderick strong is good enough to make it to the main roster he's not going to make it far he's not going to last long I think a guy like Roddy definitely has a ceiling on him in WWE. Same with Bobby Fish and Kyle O'Reilly. If they bring them up as a tag team, then they're going to do great. If they keep them separated or try to do a singles run with Kyle or something, which Kyle can do singles, I don't think Bobby would be as uh, much of a standout in the singles, but I think Kyle could hang. But again, like... I don't even want to say Kyle's a charisma vacuum because he's not. Kyle's got charisma in a weird way, though. How he'll play the air guitar down to the ring and all those weird little quirks and gestures and, and things like that. Kyle has enough personality in a weird way where I think he could live on his own. But Bobby Fish, absolutely not. They're better off as a tag team. But the whole thing is better off as a unit because they can all stand behind Adam Cole. Because Adam Cole has the mouth and the personality and the charisma to take them all to the top. But the thing that Adam Cole lacks is size. He's a small fucking guy. Like, very small. Like, deceivingly small. A lot of wrestlers are smaller these days. And I'm not at all the big guys kind of guy, you know. I don't care if smaller guys work. And I don't think... I, like It doesn't bother me at all because Adam Cole can work like a motherfucker, but he'll definitely be one of the smallest guys on the roster if he gets the call up. I think obviously Adam Cole's going to have the best shot of, at success. Everybody says it. I think it it's inevitable for a guy like Adam Cole. I don't think it's a remains-to-be-seen situation. I think Adam Cole is one of those special elite-level guys that will rise to the top. But it's because he's got the character and the personality and the and the words. And, and those are things that a Kyle O'Reilly, a Bobby Fish, and a Roderick Strong don't have. That's why they needed the group. And I think I think Adam Cole needed the group because it gave it made him more intimidating. Because he's not the biggest guy and he's not gonna be able to physically heal on another guy you know he's not going to be able to physically dominate anybody he's not going to physically be a threat but with his group that makes them all physically a threat and you know again it was definitely time to do something with the undisputed era if you weren't going to call him up then i think the next best thing to do would have been break him up break him up see what happens um but 
it, it'll be interesting to see where all these guys end up over the next couple of years. That's for sure. Go check out this interview. Get more insight on Kyle O'Reilly. Get to listen to him talk a little bit. It's not something that he does very often. His name doesn't pop up on the podcast circuit much. So take the chance and, and go check that out. Jim Cornette gave his two cents on Brock Lesnar and his time in OVW this week. Check this out. Uh, from the start, I could tell he had no personality because he was sullen. He wasn't outgoing. He wasn't a wrestling fan. He wasn't a fucking cut up in the locker room. He had been catered to as a star athlete in these fucking cow towns that he grew up in in South Dakota or whatever. He wasn't working as hard as the other guys were working because he was a natural genetic freak and didn't have to, but he was somewhat boring and not particularly well-suited to the personality side of this business, which is why that I gave Shelton to him as a tag team partner because Shelton could do everything and was exciting and actually likable. He was constantly trying to get out of OVW from the time that he showed up because he didn't want to be down here training with the guys. He wanted to be training with Brad Rangins in Minnesota in a barn. And that's when he pulled the, oh, my girlfriend's pregnant. I got to go back home for six months. He was making five times at least what the other developmental guys were making, wasn't working as hard, didn't want to be involved in the program, and was trying to find excuses to get out of it. A lot of fans don't like Brock because they know through stories like this that he just doesn't even like wrestling. You know, Brock was a guy that always wanted to do something else. I want to be a football player. I want to be a UFC fighter. I want to go fucking be a Viking somewhere, wherever Vikings hang out. I don't know what Vikings do. But he wanted to be anything but a WWE guy. That was always his fallback. You know how you always hear wrestlers say, always have a plan B, have something to fall back on. Brock's backup plan was WWE while he went out and tried everything else that he wanted to do. This doesn't bother me at all. The problem is, is that he's notoriously difficult to work with because he doesn't give a shit. You know, Moxley famously talked about him trying to work with Brock, and granted, if he was trying to have a fucking barbed wire exploding hardcore match, Brock's not going to be into that shit. Even if it was Moxley taking all of those bumps, Brock didn't want to be associated with that. So there's one. But now I hear Cornette saying, like, the guy was just difficult to work with even down there. He wanted to call in sick or call in with a baby. I mean, who calls in just because they got a baby on the way? Come on. But Brock could get away with it because he was a freak. Because he was a freak of fucking nature. Because he looked so scary. Because his athleticism. He was so quick. So strong. So agile. He was just a fucking monster beast from day one. And he was being paid so much more than everybody else. You know, sometimes WWE gets these hard-ons for people where... They can really just do no wrong. They're not even interested in WWE, and WWE just throws money at him like fucking strippers. WWE throws money at Brock to get him in because he makes them look legitimate. But yeah, Corny was awfully uh, salty about his time spent with Brock and OVW, so you know, at the end of the day, this was just a job for him, and that was fine. But if you're going to do a job, like show up to work, you know? Impact World Champion Rich Swan was on talk as Jericho this week, hyping up his big pay-per-view main event match, title versus title. 
versus the AEW champion Kenny Omega this Sunday at Rebellion. If you're listening to this the day the show drops, then it is tonight. If you're listening to this anytime after the show drops, then it was already happened and you already know who won. But for the sake of argument, we're going to pretend you don't know. This is a huge match in the history of pro wrestling. One of the very rare few times that a world champion from one promotion has defended against another world champion from another promotion when they weren't owned by the same company, right? You saw WCW versus WWE and ECW versus WWE, but it was all once WWE already owned WCW and ECW. This is something different. These are two completely different companies going head-to-head, working together, big title versus title match. Now, we know Rich Swan's not going to win. Let's be real here. But it was fun to listen to him talk about it and pretend he had a chance at least, right? Check out this clip from the Talk is Jericho interview where he talks about the differences between WWE and Impact. So when you first went to Impact from WWE, what were some of the biggest uh, changes and differences for you? Obviously, two different sizes of companies, but what was the backstage like? What was the kind of the protocol different there? Definitely, it was more at ease. And not that I felt like I was walking on eggshells at the WWE because my time there was, I didn't have any problems. I was fine. But definitely, the difference between the two companies, you can feel that there is not as much pressure that's put onto your shoulders and not like. This job, this job, it, it, it's meant for that. Mm-hmm. You're supposed to have pressure. You're supposed to feel it, but unnecessary things. You know what I'm saying? Like things are, you know, just planned out more. And it's just because I feel like over there it's more of a machine. Here it's more intimate, mm-hmm. more of a family style, like style based. Uh, I feel like it's it's not brought from person to person to person for sure it's not as regimented and this has to be approved and that has to be approved yeah yeah exactly exactly it goes through two people and they're making the decision and you know we work and talk through things and you know we come to the a decision and an agreement and we do it do you get more promo time in impact oh yes indeed you get more time to talk and it's not somebody else's words mm-hmm. They, they give you the guidelines. They tell you, hey, this is where we want to go. And you have free reign to speak in w- within those guidelines. And, you know, it's not like something that's written to the max and you have to remember every single line. Right. Yeah, it's, it's a place where they give you the freedom to be a professional wrestler. Mm-hmm. I love these little comparisons. I love when wrestlers are willing to talk about what it's like behind the scenes, and compare the different companies. You know, WWE is a machine. They don't have room for all that creative freedom shit. You're here now, bitch. Now you work for me. Now you do what I say. Now you do what I want you to do. And it only makes sense. WWE has their ways of doing things, being a corporate, fucking publicly traded company and all that. We all understand that it's got to work like that. But it's got to be nice for a wrestler to spend a number of years in that system feeling oppressed, feeling held down, feeling like they can't stand out. 
and then getting the opportunity to jump over to a new company where they can be free once again. And sometimes when you see that happen, you still see guys sink to the bottom because they really didn't have it. They blamed it on WWE. Oh, it's the system. They held me back, blah, blah, blah. Then they go out and try to do it on their own. Sean Spears. And then they just flop. They just show that they never really had it in them to begin with. Sean Spears. So then there's other guys who excel at the opportunity to make a name for themselves outside of the WWE. Rich Swan is in the process of trying to do that now. I never really liked Rich Swan. I never got it. He never stood out to me. I wasn't a fan of 205 Live. Um, there was nothing about, like, I, I made an attempt because so many people love Rich Swan. So many people have so many great things to say about it. Uh, so I made an honest attempt multiple times to, to watch Rich Swan. And I'm not going to take anything away from his work. He's a good worker. But he doesn't keep my attention. There's nothing about him that makes me go, oh, I have to watch this guy. Um, but I'm going to make a point to watch this show. I'm going to watch Impact for the first time in 25 years. And I'm definitely interested to see what kind of show. This is a huge opportunity for Rich Swan. This is a huge opportunity for Impact. This is an opportunity to get new eyes on the product that they would not have otherwise had. Impact lost a lot of people that used to watch. You got to remember, they were doing, they were up close to 2 million at one point. This is a company that has sank so low, they're almost non-existent. But yet they fight. They continue to try to redefine themselves. They continue to try to outrun that TNA stink. And this is an opportunity at this show, Rebellion, where these TNA guys, these Impact guys can prove to the world that they're not TNA. That they don't have that TNA stink. That this is a company you want to watch, you want to follow, and is going to provide great action. We shall see, but I'll be tuning in and checking it out. We had a really cool thing on After the Bell this week, the WWE podcast hosted by Corey Graves and Vic Joseph. This week, Corey Graves and Vic Joseph stepped aside, and it was a day in the life of Big E. That's Biggie Langston of the New Day Click. And uh, they followed him around, and they did sort of like an audio diary for WrestleMania weekend, both day one and day two for Biggie. And it was really cool. It was a good chance to get to like an intimate inside look at Biggie. It was a good way to get a feel for the man behind the colorful persona. You know, the guy that's always out there being loud and swiveling his hips and such. Check out this clip where Biggie talks about the difference between his character on TV and what he's like outside the ring. Check this out. Um, I definitely think there are a lot of people who are, are taken aback by the difference between me on screen and off screen. And just for me, I just found that, you know, I'm someone who, ha- who flips the switch. That's very me is I, I love the energy and the chaos of being out there on live TV and doing what we do. But for me, I just can't live like that on a day-to-day basis. I can't be that obnoxious and it's draining, man. It, it does take a good deal of energy to be like that all the time, as much as I love it. So uh, it, I have a friend of mine, uh, his fiance, Tanya, is always taken aback anytime she watches me because she's kind of like me. She's quieter, more introverted. 
but uh, she just, it's a huge disconnect for her. And I started to realize, I guess there is a, a pretty vast difference because I'm not doing any of those things. People talk about, and I feel bad, I, people talk about like, hey man, it would be awesome to hang out with you or have a drink with you. And I'm like, man, I'm, I'm not so sure because uh, it's just, it's not that level of uh, excitement and energy that you would think in my personal life. But that's how I like it, you know? For me, that, that's how I find balance. I'm the same way, man. I can put on a show if that's what I'm supposed to do. You know, I got experience hosting. I got a rap background. I used to do shows on stage, perform for crowds. I've been involved in wrestling before, been on the mic, cut promos in front of crowds in a wrestling ring. I've done a lot of that kind of stuff, but when I'm outside of the entertainment spotlight, I'm just chill. I just want to put my feet up. I want to sit back in the corner. I'm not talking to everybody. I'm not being loud. I'm not making a show of myself. I just want to chill and just observe and just kind of do my own thing. And Biggie strikes me as that same kind of person. You know, when the camera goes off, the man just wants to be at peace with his life. He just wants to live his quiet life. Life and I respect that. I respect I respect the shit out of Biggie Langston. Definitely one of my favorite WWE talents. Always listen to their podcast, but I really liked what After the Bell did here. Just a kind of day in the life. I want to hear more of this kind of stuff. Very similar. It was like something that the WWE Network would do, but it was an audio format, and it was just it was really cool. So I appreciated that. I recommend checking this one out. Go check out After the Bell. Corey Graves, Vic Joseph good shit the masterpiece chris masters made a very rare podcast appearance on insight with chris van vliet this week and they walked through his entire run in wwe and they walked through the suspension and the eventual firing of chris masters here's a clip of chris talking to chris about what happened when he was let go from the company check this out so I, I had to go to rehab in my first WWE run. And uh, when I came out of rehab, I was I was lighter, you know, because I was basically, everybody thought I was doing the rehab for, uh, they just assumed because of the character it was for like steroids, but it wasn't, you know what I mean? It was I had a prescription pill issue, which, you know, obviously a lot of people have had in the business. But um, so, but then when I was in rehab, you know, I would wake up every morning and I would go on this like beautiful two mile run. So I'd wake up every morning and I'd start with a run. And, but for someone like me, like when I do stuff like that, like I just basically, I was doing that every day to keep my sanity and I wasn't stepping on a scale. And by the time I left that place, I had lost, you know, a good 15 to 20 pounds. So I came back when I came back from that, I was much slimmer and um, I felt, you know, it was. I didn't have even really thought about it because I was battling uh, deeper issues, obviously, if I was in sure. rehab. You know what I mean? So I wasn't thinking about that. But then when I came back to WWE and, you know, I heard a little bit of chatter about it, I was like, then I felt a little pressure. I'm like, oh, you know, I should, I got to put on, you know, I got to go up and at least like try maybe put on 10 pounds or just eat a little more or whatever. Because, uh, you know, the reaction was enough for me to kind of be like, oh. Yeah, I think that a lot of people just went, Oh, he was on steroids before. He's now not on steroids. This is the difference. That's the, yeah. And that's the, you know what? I can't even fault them for that because 
uh, you know, if I was just a casual viewer or somebody not really kind of hearing these interviews or something like that, that's probably just what you'd assume. Like, oh, he had to go to rehab. It must have been for steroids. And then when you see he comes back and he's he's lighter, it just it just makes sense. And so, uh, but that wasn't the case. It just it, it just wasn't really, you know. Yeah, everybody assumed it was steroids. I mean, look at the fucking guy. He's all jacked up, juiced up, fucking muscles on top of muscles, chiseled like a fucking statue. When he came out, remember that guy? Do you even remember Chris Masters? He was a tag team with Carlito for a little while. But when he came out, he looked fucking chiseled. He did this thing where he was doing the poses and he had the lights down and the fucking little cape thing and he would fling it off his shoulders and fucking step forward and flex and he was just the masterpiece put everybody in the master lock right because you got to do the master lock with the masterpiece i dug the guy i didn't think he had a whole lot of personality but there was something about him still that i liked to watch but i think everybody assumed he was on steroids and especially when he was suspended for a wellness policy violation that definitely got everybody going, oh, yeah, the steroid guy got busted out at steroids. Of course he did. But you heard it here first, or maybe you heard it somewhere else first, too. It doesn't matter what the fuck you heard. Chris Masters, he said he was on opiates. He was on the pills, doing the fucking gimmicks, popping handfuls of gimmicks. You know, everybody was on the gimmicks back in the day, and some people got hooked on them, and that's... I understand that, you know, I've grown up with a lot of friends that grew up with pill addictions and shit and had to battle that. It's a nasty fucking thing. So I can only imagine when you're a pro wrestler and you're taking bumps all the time and you're on the road and the wear and the tear and the tiredness, man, you gotta, you gotta self-medicate. You don't want to lose that spot, especially back in like the eighties and stuff. But even up into the early two thousands, you can, Chris Masters, Kurt Angle, they all did it. They all suffered with this addiction. But then remember when he came back, he was smaller too, which also led to all the, the steroid innuendo and such. And then fucking Triple H with his big ass nose cuts his promo making fun of Chris Masters for looking deflated or whatever the fuck he said. Remember back in those days, Triple H used to fucking just bury everybody. Now everybody on the roster is Triple H's boys. Now everybody's his kids, right? Everybody came up through NXT now, so everybody has Triple H's fingerprints all over them, so Triple H doesn't feel the need to bury any of these people because they're all his kids. They're all under him. They're all his projects. But if you were anywhere near a peer of Triple H, back when Triple H was still competing in the ring as an active member, he would be ruthless with people and just fucking bury them. Jim Ross was talking about that on his 2006 uh, episode of John Cena that we talked about earlier. He was talking about how Triple H buried John Cena in the ring, said he can't wrestle, then went out there and fucking lost to the guy. So like Jim Ross says, what does that make you? If you lose to the guy who who's, can't wrestle, what does that say about your wrestling ability? But we're going off on a tangent here. I don't think a lot of people have those same feelings about Triple H right now. I think over time that's kind of went away. Like I said, I think that's because he's he's not going to bury any of his kids anymore. But nevertheless, this was a good interview. It was fun to listen to Chris because he was just very open and honest. He didn't try to really hold back or hide anything. you know. And Chris Van Vliet always knows how to get a good interview out of somebody. So he had the right questions there to ask. Good interview. 
Uh, nothing too exciting with Chris Masters, but definitely if you want to take a little bit of a deep dive into that era of wrestling, learn more about his career, this is a great one to check out. Thank you guys so much for checking out the show. I appreciate you guys checking me out every single week, keeping up to date on all the happenings going on in podcast land out there on the internet. I'm here for you guys. I'm doing it for you. My viewership is going up. I'm getting lots and lots of new listens from all around the country here on the podcast, so I'm really excited about that. I appreciate everybody that's new coming and checking me out. Check me out every week. We're going to talk about all the podcasts, all the shoot interviews, all the shit that's going on outside the ring. It's happening here. I'm your host, Seth Grimes. Follow me on social media, Twitter, Facebook, whatever the fuck, at Seth Grimes Media. Find us on YouTube. Thank you for being here with me from the bottom of my heart. You could be anywhere. You could be listening to anybody, but you're here with me. And uh, that's just says a lot about you, I guess. Yeah. Peace out, everybody. <laughs>